Hear the word of the Lord. Genesis 11, verses 1 through 9. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with the top in in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they have all one language. And this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and there confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel. Because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth. And from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God. We've been going through the book of Genesis. We've come to a famous story in the book of Genesis, the Tower of Babel. It is a story of man trying to ascend, to go up. To God. And God, in judgments, smacking them down, you might say, coming down. Man wants to go up, and God, in turn, comes down instead of man going up. Now, there are two parts to this passage I would like to draw your attention to tonight. The first part that I would draw your attention to is simply man's desire to dethrone God. That's one of the major parts. Not only is it a plot in the story, it's a theme. But secondly, it's God coming down to judge those who are rising up in arrogance and pride. So the desire to dethrone God first and God's coming down to judge the earth. And first, man's desire to dethrone God. We see that right off the bat in verses 1 and 2. They have one language Literally, in Hebrew, it's the same lip. But what are they using that language for? It's a universal language, but they're not using it to promote the true worship of the one true God. Instead, what they are doing is something in contrast to what God had commanded them to do. If you remember, the very beginning, in creation, they were told to be fruitful and multiply. But what we have here is that at the end of verse 2, it says they settled there in a plain in the land of Shinar. They settled. Instead of doing what God had asked, and by the way, he asked twice. Remember when Noah disembarks the ark? They are told to be fruitful, to multiply, to fill the earth. They're supposed to disperse over the whole earth. And instead, they congregate and settle. Not only that, but it tells us that 
at the start of verse 2, they migrated from the east. And in the book of Genesis, movement to the east almost always means movement away from God. It's a bad thing. The east is a bad place to, to go to. I think East Texas is a great place, but in Genesis, moving east would be bad. And for example, Adam and Eve, of course, were expelled from the garden. The cherubim guarded the entry at the east of the Garden of Eden. When Lot left Abraham, he traveled eastward, where he met disaster in Sodom and Gomorrah in chapter 13. In chapter 25, Abraham's sons, by his concubine Keturah, are sent away from his son Isaac to the east country, Genesis 25. And Jacob flees his homeland to the people of the east in Genesis 29. So it's a theme, or it's a, it recurs over and over again. And here in the story of the Tower of Babel, the eastward migration depicts a universal rebellion against God. A couple of other things to note. If you go back in chapter 10, since it's right before this passage, I'll have you turn there. Chapter 10, verse 8, we learn about the beginnings of Babel. It says, Cush fathered Nimrod. He was the first one on earth to be a mighty man. If you skip down in verse 10 to verse 10, the beginning of his kingdom was Babel. Erech, Akkad, and Kalna in the land of Shinar. So we have here the beginning of rebellion in Nimrod. And I think Pastor Johnson noted last time that Nimrod's name means rebellion. We shall rebel. That's what it means. So he's living up to his name, and his descendants after him, of course, are taking after the father. Peleg, which is someone mentioned in verse 25, if you turn all the way to chapter 10, verse 25, Peleg is mentioned, Eber, to Eber were born two sons, the name of one was Peleg, and the others was Joktan. Well, Peleg means division, and it's during his lifetime when most likely the scattering at the Tower of Babel took place. Interestingly, chapter 11 in some ways, is chronologically before some of the events in chapter 10. I think the reason that Moses is doing that is because he's providing a thematic overview of what happened at Babel. He's not necessarily providing a chronological history, but it is history, but it's simply not chronologically placed for us. A few other things, or one other thing to note, Babel in Hebrew is confusion. That's what the name of Babel means. But there was another ancient Near Eastern language called Akkadian. And in Akkadian, Babel means gate of God. There's two opposite meanings of the term, depending on which language you're reading. One of the commentators put it this way, that there is a difference with respect to the meaning of the word Babel we see two different worldviews and hopes for humanity. The two meanings are totally at odds. They represent antagonistic plans of salvation, the one by human action, the other by the grace of God. Two views of sovereignty are in conflict. 
the sovereignty of God versus the sovereignty of man in a world state. One rests on the promise, you shall be as God, knowing good and evil, Genesis 3, 5, and the other on our Lord's prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane, not my will, but thine be done. We have two rival doctrines of what constitute good and one which is evil. So I think it's really helpful for us to consider that even within the name Babel, we have two rival visions of what the purpose of man is and what our goal should be and how we are to be saved. These foolish and rebellious people thought that they could, in some sense, save themselves by towering up to God. Of course, we know that that's ridiculous, but it is a theme, and it gets to the heart, really, of our own sin. We all have a desire to be like God, and those who are dead in their trespasses and sins, they think themselves to be God, and they think, in many ways, that they will never be judged for the wickedness that is in their life. It's a theme throughout the Bible, and it's sadly something that is in the human heart. One last consideration before moving on. Eden, the Garden of Eden, is very similar. What happens there is very similar to what happens here. In the Garden of Eden, of course, they're, they're the Adam and Eve are told not to eat of the tree of knowledge and good, of good and evil. And, of course, they, they fall into sin. The people here are told to be fruitful, multiply, and to fill the earth, and they don't do it. But there's more similarities. Shinar is between the Tigris and Euphrates River, which traditionally has been the location of where the Garden of Eden is to be found. Not only that, but when in our passage, God says, let us come down, I think that's in verse 7, let us go down, he's using the plural, let us, not let me, let us. And in Genesis, the early chapters of Genesis, God says, man has become like one of us. Also, when God creates Adam and Eve, he creates man in his own image. Um, and God says, let us, let us make man in our image. He uses the plural. So there's a lot of similarities that are going on between Eden and Babel. Of course, they're both expelled. Adam and Eve are expelled from that place. And the people here are expelled from Babel. It is a a kind of second or third fall. We saw a second Adam, you might say, in Noah, and a second fall. So maybe this is a third fall. But you can see that there's a pattern repeating. Now, what kind of tower was this? Now, before I answer that, in verse 3, when it says that they made this tower out of bricks and they used brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. In Moses' day, which was later than this took place, of course, he's writing history, but in Moses' day in, in the Israelite um, culture, they used stone, not brick. They used mortar, not bitumen. And some commentators see that Moses is mocking their building methods. One of the things that builders love to do about other builders, I learned this because I was in the building industry for three years. 
But anyway, Moses, I think, may be making a slight uh, mocking comment here about their building materials. Now, I will direct you to your handout. On this handout, the, the bottom is a graph or a picture of a ziggurat. This comes from the ESV Study Bible. Now, we don't exactly know what the Tower of Babel looked like. This is a guess, but here's what it says. I think it's useful. Ziggurats are monumental temple towers found throughout the area of ancient Mesopotamia. They were commonly built of sun-dried mud and straw bricks held in position with bitumen as mortar. Stairways ascended to the top of these structures where a small temple shrine sat on the summit. The illustration below depicts a ziggurat of Nana at Ur, which was constructed during the reign of Ur-Namu, 2113 through 2095 BC. I won't read on further, but is this what the Tower of Babel looked like? We don't know. No one quite knows. It's possible that it could have been like a ziggurat. Many commentators think it was a kind of ziggurat. If it was, and even if it wasn't, clearly there is a sacred or idolatrous purpose. At the very top of this ziggurat is a place where you are to worship a false god. I think that what we have here is not simply a fun gathering together of people to build a fun tower. What you have is an idolatrous rebellion against God to worship a a kind of false god. Not only do you have that, but of course we, we know that their stated purpose is to make a name for themselves. It says in verse 4, we shall make a name for ourselves. Let us make a name for ourselves lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. So their purpose is merely to gratify themselves, to glorify themselves. There are a number of interesting linguistic features about this passage that, as I'm not a Hebrew scholar, I can't bring out, but I will show you on your page that there is a kind of chiastic structure. So if you look at at your page, you can see in English what there is in Hebrew that this has a, a high point. There's a climax to this story. It starts with the whole earth had one language, and the very tip of this, you might call it a sideways ziggurat or sideways pyramid, is verse 5. The very heart of this passage comes down to verse 5. And along the way, as we're reading, if you were to read this in Hebrew, there's alliteration, there's rhyme, there's assonance, but it all comes to a head at verse 5. And what, of course, happens in verse 5? Well, God comes down. He says, let us come down. uh, Or excuse me, in verse 5, it says, the Lord came down to see the city and the tower. Do you think that God could really have dwelled on earth in this tower? Do you think that this tower was really something that he was pleased about? We're told, of course, in Isaiah 40, that God sits above the circle of the earth, that its inhabitants are like grasshoppers who stretch 
he who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them out like a tent to dwell in. God is the maker of heaven and earth. He could never dwell in a, in a structure like this. In fact, that if he were, if he did have a body, which we know that God does not have a body, he's a spirit, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable, but he'd have to get on his hands and knees to look at this thing. He'd have to have a microscope to see it, right? It would be like little miniature, you know, sculptures that, that he would be playing with. Certainly, this could never, never be the place where God would dwell. And I think in Psalm 2, it says this, that he who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. I think that could be applied to this passage. This is quite ridiculous that this could ever please God. Now, you might be thinking, but doesn't God dwell in the tabernacle or the temple? We know that the Lord did instruct his people at that time to make a tabernacle and then later a temple. But it's clear that those structures were, first of all, they were built according to the command of God and direction of God, according to his strict rules and regulations. But also, even though it's a symbol of his presence, we know that he is omnipresent. And of course, you'll find that it is in the Holy of Holies that God meets, you might say, with the high priest once a year. But he's doing so there, I think, in order to show us that he is high above us and that we can only approach him through the mediation of sacrifice and a great high priest. So it's a very different structure and built for a very different purpose than what we have here. Now, in verse 6 through 8, so we have God coming down. Man seeks to go up in his pride, but God comes down. And in verse 6 through 8, he's really assessing the situation. Now, I know there, it says here, this verse, that in verse 7, let us go down there and confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. And then later, um, excuse me, before that, in verse 6, he says, nothing that they propose to do now will be impossible for them. Is the Lord really impressed with what they're doing? I don't think so. Is he afraid that he's going to be dethroned? I don't think so. I think what he's saying is that these are a wicked and adulterous people, and if we let them carry on the way they're carrying on, there's no end to the wickedness. There's no end to the corruption that they might do. And therefore, it's really in their interest to scatter them, to fill them with confusion. So that's what he does in verses 8 and 9. He sends his judgment, and he gives them what they fear the most, which is scattering over the face, being scattered over the face of the earth. Now, I went through that rather quickly, but I'm not done because this story, this historical account, cannot be read outside of the context, not only of Genesis, but of the whole Bible. Because in the whole Bible, we learn that Babel becomes a synonym, you might say, for Babylon. And Babylon, in the Old Testament, is a wicked place. 
the Israelites are exiled to Babylon. In Daniel, Babylon is seen as a wicked kingdom. So it, and in Revelation, when we get to Revelation, Babylon there in Revelation 18 is a symbol, you might say, of, I think it is at least, of the kingdoms of this world, the wicked, corrupt, false, counterfeit kingdoms of this world that seek to imitate the kingdom of God. But where is the hope? So I I said that man is proud, he seeks to go up, and God comes down in judgment. So where's the hope that we see here in this passage? I think that we see it throughout the whole of Scripture, if you put on the lens of the New Testament, or even really the Old Testament, because let me read to you from Zephaniah chapter 3. Zephaniah chapter 3, verse 9. Give me a minute here. For this is what it says. For at that time, Zephaniah is prophesying about a future time, which I would say is the consummation of God's new covenant. For at that time, I will change the speech of the peoples to a pure speech that all of them may call upon the name of the Lord and serve him with one accord. Zephaniah 3, 9. Now, when exactly does that happen? God comes down, this might surprise you, but he comes down in three other places in in the Bible, three places in the New Testament. First, of course, he comes down When he clothes himself in flesh as the Son of God, the Son of God comes down, takes on human flesh, takes on a nature, human nature, does not cease being God, but adds humanity to his divine nature, such that you have one person. But what is the purpose of Christ's coming? It's there he comes so that we are not judged for our wickedness and for our corruption and sin. He comes in order to make a name for himself, that at the name of Jesus Christ, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. He comes to save us and rescue his people from their idolatry. But when he dies on the cross and he is raised and he ascends to heaven, he comes down a second time. And that's, I would call it, we don't call it Jesus' second coming, But I could see how people might say it, and that is at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. Here's what happens at Pentecost, Acts chapter 2. Each one was hearing them in his own language. The apostles are speaking, and each one is hearing them in his own language. So we have a kind of reversal of Babel and a sign that the last days in which all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved... We have a sign that Jesus Christ is powerful to save and reverse what happened at Babel in his own way and in his own time to make one people and one language out of all those who are on the earth. Now, we know that we still speak different languages today, but let me read to you John Calvin on this passage. He says, Calvin says, he has proclaimed one gospel in all languages throughout the whole world and has endued the apostles with the gift of tongues. 
Whence it has come to pass that they who before were miserably divided, remember Peleg, division, they have coalesced in the unity of the faith. In this sense, Isaiah says that the language of Canaan should be common to all under the reign of Christ, Isaiah 19, 18, because all, although their language may differ in sound, they all speak the same thing while they cry, Abba, Father. So it's true that There's a spiritual language now that we speak that is common to all tribes and nations, the language of Christ in the resurrection. So the first time God comes in the New Testament, of course, is in, in the incarnation. The second time is in Pentecost. But there is going to be a third time that we see, and Revelation tells us about, John tells us about, in Revelation 21, when he sees the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, by its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations. Christ will come yet an- another time. He's poured out his spirit, he came in flesh. And he will come again to bring his people to himself and, sadly and tragically, to bring judgment on those who are unrepentant. Let me leave you with this. Two, or shall I say one, application to consider. There are people today who live for many different things. Often, one of them is to make a name for themselves. They want their own glory to shine forth and have other people see it, whether that's through money or politics or psychology or really anything could be used in an idolatrous way. But you and I are to lay our identity, our reputations before the Lord and find our hope and identity in Christ. We're not to seek to make a name for ourselves. We're to seek to make a name for the Lord. We're to seek his glory and his honor. And rather than building our own towers and kingdoms, we ought to seek to build the church of Christ. Jesus Christ is the cornerstone of this great building that lasts forever, that endures forever, in which every tongue and tribe and nation are a part of. He's the chief architect of this building. It's one that will last forever and endure throughout all generations. So let us today lay down any pride and sin and arrogance and take hold of that which is truly life, that which is truly glorious, and live for the name of Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Almighty God, we do thank you and praise you that you've given us hope. You have come by sending your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to live our, a life that we could never live, to live up to the demands of your law and take the judgment on his pla- in our place. You've poured out your spirit in which the, all nations are being affected by your spirit. We thank you that at Pentecost, on that day when people heard in one language the gospel being proclaimed, we thank you that it's a picture of what will happen one day when all of us are ransomed and brought into the new heavens and the new earth. 
We look forward to that day when Jesus Christ comes again to bring his people to himself. Give us hope, Lord, in that we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.